Hello and welcome back to the Local Matters Podcast. I'm here today with Seth. Hiya. And Patrick. Hello. And I'm Charlie. So today, uh, again, we're talking about the monthly events. Uh, the date we're recording this on is the 11th of March. Um, so we're going to talk about everything that's happened since um, the end of January. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about um, the topics throughout the month. And then we're going to talk uh and then we're going to end by talking about the second chapter of our book, which is for democracy against bureaucracy and unaccountability. So the start of the month, February, uh, was the date of our book release. Um, it feels like a long time since that happened, to be honest, but we were pleasantly surprised um, by how well the book did and uh, especially the positive reception it got as well. Yeah, and no, we got a lot of really good feedback. And, and honestly, I think we were... Um... You know, we were very proud of the work that we'd done, but we were a little bit concerned as to, you know, if anybody else would enjoy it as much as we did, because obviously we are in that bubble when we are writing. But no, a lot of the support and feedback we've had uh, has been absolutely um, fantastic. And it's it's really uh, given us a lot of, uh, you know, motivation to keep going and keep doing what we're doing, just because we know now how strongly people identify with the ideas and we can find, you know, a lot more um, confidence in terms of what we're talking about, because people sort of know uh generally the broader ideals of localism rather than having to watch you know 20 episodes of a podcast to sort of get the gist now they can you know buy the book get in there and, and much more strongly understand what it is we're talking about and what it is we're fighting for so i think not only is it such a useful tool for us in terms of motivation and, and providing a pathway but i think as well for a lot of our followers they've said it's been really helpful as well in, in helping them figure out what you know their their own understanding of localism is and, and how it ties into their own existing beliefs as well so it's it's been brilliant all around and i think we're just waiting now on a few more reviews from a few people who've received copies um and then hopefully we can continue to, to sort of push the book and grow the book and, and push the ideas alongside it from there yeah i was gonna say it's early days on that as well when you think about it we've still got quite a few bigger followers who are yet to get back and are still digesting or reading their physical copies as well yeah i think um there were a lot of people who got the copies quite late as well a lot of international uh readers and stuff uh who are talking about doing reviews of the book uh, where we expect to get quite a few more sales from as well. Um, still, uh, not only got the book a little bit more late because of the the delayed shipping and COVID and everything else, but obviously as well, it's it's quite a hefty book, so you probably have to read it a couple of times through to get the full, you know, uh, gist of it. But we we have had some some early responses from some, um, you know, sort of larger um, readers in terms of you know the the, the scale and the, the reputation. We had a reply from I think it was Wessex Regionalists. Who, who endorsed the writing within the book, which was really, um, really positive as well to see sort of an existing regionalist organization getting behind, you know, what is really our own brand of localism um, and, and now standing behind it as this sort of core idea of this unifying ideology. Uh, it's, it's really exciting to see just how far localism can go when there are existing political movements that are now sort of taking these ideas on board and using them. And, um, you know, I think we have actually seen a lot more of, of people running with this term of localism uh you know not necessarily directly following the suit of our book in every word um but the ideas of localism um to some extent are becoming more popular within the media um especially focusing around uh small businesses local economies uh direct democracy uh, communal ownership things like that are becoming a lot more popular now in uh in celebrity circles and, and political circles as well 
Yeah. Even even terms like um, pro local, shop local, and um, you know supporting small businesses. Uh, these are becoming very popular. I mean, the the sort of sentiment for small businesses has always been lingering there. Uh, but we've said several times the pandemic really brought it out of people. Uh, and especially now it's really becoming um, uh, a term that we're seeing online. I mean, we posted uh, Russell Brand uh, on, on our Instagram. Of course, no matter what you think of him or his political views, um, you know, even just, even just simply the fact that someone of that size is using the term localism. Uh, and he said... Um, think his words were um, that um, we need a new ideology which he thinks is going to be localism um, to, to sort of bring us through the 21st century uh, that's really exciting yeah no it's it's fantastic to see um, sort of the, the growth in some of these ideas and I think really a lot of them are being used in in quite distant terms so you'll have a lot of people talking about direct democracy a lot of people talking about uh, local businesses, local economies, a lot of people talk about communal ownership, uh, identities, regional identities, national identities, local identities. But at the minute, a lot of these things are still being discussed in isolation. Whereas the brilliant thing about our book and why I think we've released it, not only with some fantastic ideas, but additionally at a fantastic time, because as these ideas of localism are being distributed and discussed, there is actually a unifying piece of work there to bring all these concepts together and, and sort of tie them in a nice little bow. Uh, which I think is is really, really exciting in terms of being in the middle of the discussion, in the front of the discussion, really, if anything. Yeah, one of the things I found quite helpful with the feedback as well is after we finished it and after we'd spent, you know, months and months pouring over it and working on it each evening until late into the evening and, you know, working it out between five people, always tricky. And it was always tricky to come to democratic decisions on what we thought about things. But it was nice because we formulated those ideas. Um slowly together because we all had our ideas of what localism was and interestingly almost all of us were sort of right in our own way and it was quite nice to sort of lobby to each other when someone said you know i think this about x matter and someone else thought something else we sort of found those middle grounds found what we actually thought there and formalized where our standpoint would actually be and i was just glad because afterwards after spending all that time on it i spent quite a bit of time then away from the book and didn't read over it for a while while it was all formatted for publishing and things like that and took a took a uh, step back and it was just nice to see the feedback come back and get that positivity surrounding people saying like okay it hasn't talked down to us at all but it's also complex enough that it does actually address issues correctly and um, people have said you know it's solid critiques in there and things I don't know if you have one of the tweets there to read out but there was one I was particularly happy about seeing because you know, you worry no matter what when you write anything. Uh, have have we hit on this bit hard enough, or have we been too soft on this? Have we not fully explained this bit in detail? And one of the things I was worried about was if we discussed degrowth enough. And I was just chuffed to see feedback come back saying that it had you know realistic plans for degrowth. Yeah, we definitely had a lot of um, positive reception to it. Uh, we had a lot of DMs, um, primarily, and the most the most common thing wasn't so much uh, in support of a specific policy that we talked about, but it was that we were refreshing in that we were bringing things together and that we were being open and discussing things, um, you know, with critical thinking, as we have a section about uh, right at the end of the book. Um, and I think I think that so many people are losing hope in the idea that they can speak their um, genuine political beliefs um, without being, you know, without having to sort of um, curb them or reword them for a specific audience. 
Patrick, the other day uh, we were speaking and you said um, something about um, politics being the only uh, subject which you're not allowed to be incorrect about. Mm. What was that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, a sentiment which really rings true and I don't think it's sort of enough recognition, really. And that's the fact that, you know, when you do discuss in political circles, it's an environment where there is clearly subjectivity, you know, the right and the wrong way to do things. And there's so many ideas out there which, to a certain extent, have never been tried at all or quite literally have never been tried at all. And it's it's really interesting to see just how um, divisive it can get when you have people with such strong beliefs one way or the other that I, I sort of, you know, I would describe, you know, political ideologies in a sense as, as a, a non-theistic religion. You know, people have and do die for their, you know, political beliefs and ideologies. And it's it's that level of, of toxicity that's, you know, in the 21st century, we're not killing each other anymore, be it for democracy or communism or fascism or you know whatever it is but we're certainly still finding new and exciting ways to uh cancel people censor people or even just um you know make discourse so difficult to get into that it excludes certain voices um that that there's still a lot of issues there in terms of democracy being a sort of open forum um and being able to be discussed freely uh with without that sort of fear of of pushback you know if i if i have a certain answer about my interpretation of shakespeare no one's gonna bat an eyelid if they disagree with it but if it's a certain interpretation of a political text people's feelings are a lot more um antagonized quite quickly and it's an understandable subject because obviously politics is is playing with people's lives to an extent it's the entire system in which you know we consider the the way in which the world runs um but ultimately i think it's it's not helpful in the 21st century to, you know, have have this level of, of aggression around politics. I think we, we t- took a big step in the 20th century around uh, ending violence surrounding ideology. I think in the 21st century, we should fight to sort of uh, erase that entire sort of stigma around different ideologies, different discussions and, and, and different perceptions. I think we should open up a free exchange of ideas uh, and, and sort of fully open the platform to true democracy, true true ideas and true politics yeah and and speaking of um, giving people the voice that obviously starts at the local level uh, and throughout february there's been two th- two things that we've looked at in um, completely separate areas one is in Liverpool and one is in kent uh, but these are two local issues one of which was touched on in the last podcast episode these are local issues where the people should have a voice but unfortunately they're overlooked because our system is just too big and the councils just don't have the power or sometimes the willingness to um, respond to these to these complaints. Yeah, so we had uh, Snodland uh, at the start of the month. There was the Oast House, which was um, there was a, an effort to try and turn that into a KFC, which I think ultimately is likely going to go through now, sadly. Um, but we have been inactive and still to an extent are inactive efforts to try and... Uh, rally public support in the area which already exists in opposition to this new construction i think it was 92 percent of of people polled in snobland were opposed to this kfc being built but of course there is no democracy in the private market and ultimately that the planning permission was pushed through 
by a private, I think it was private legal or private private planning firm. Either way, uh, despite the council, uh, the MP, and the, the the general public being against the construction of the KFC, ultimately it it still is probably going to occur, um, which is a massive shame. But I think we've done a lot of work in Snodland and around Snodland, in in showing just how much of a disconnect there is between the actual will of the people, and the you know, supposed democracy that we have versus the actual agency that people have in their most local sort of level. You know, we, we talk about democracy as this this great tool in which we can impact the way that, that we live, but ultimately our actual most uh, important form of democracy, that being what impacts our local area, our local community and ourselves, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just the state level, is very much out of our control. And Snodland is a good example of that. So... Uh, we put up uh, posters. We went down uh, with local activists on two occasions to do that, uh, and had a good response from the general public there. And like I said, there is there is going to be some more action in the future in terms of I think more specifically raising awareness of um, the importance of local democracy and how often those you know democratic voices aren't heard. Um, although that isn't always the case, as I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later, and we discovered later in the month with uh, Green Bank Park. Yeah, and Greenbank Park has been another issue uh, that we've been focused on, where um, it was a small local CAF who I have respect for, for um, being a small business, but uh, they built originally on what is essentially common land that was given to the people of Liverpool by the Rathbone family that put a lot into Liverpool. They paid for a lot of education in Liverpool, and um, there was a lot to do with shipping trade and things back in the day. Um, but that land was left to the people to be a park. And um, at first the cafe was built and people sort of ummed and ahed over it, but were okay because it's a nice little cafe. And further on from there, there was sort of incremental changes. It got an alcohol license and things like that. But again, it's not the kind of cafe where you're going to get heavy drinking or anything. So people have been largely accepting. Um, But then recently there was planning permission uh, they were attempting to put through to start building into a community garden. Um, and that was where people sort of put their foot down recently in the local community. And uh, we got wind of that and decided to help out a bit. Uh, wrote a letter to the council and the local councillor and um, wanted it to be heard that people were against it. Uh, the Friends of Greenbank Park did a lot of work there. Uh, you know, the, the, most of the legwork there really with petitions and uh, ongoing Facebook campaign for quite a while, um, but they weren't getting a response from the, the local councillor, so we decided to take the letter straight to their door, um, which has come out with great success. Yeah, um, fortunately, the address of councillors are publicly available online, um, so you can go and speak to your councillor um, you know, completely directly, and um, they do need to be held accountable for... Um, for issues such as this, which completely come under their remit, um, but the this councillor was um, was appointed to look after the green spaces in Liverpool, um, but they hadn't given any response to the Friends of Greenbank Park, so uh, it took a little more, um, uh, just a little extra step to uh, try and provoke that response, uh, and you know we can't say that the letter brought the downfall of their planning permission. Um, but absolutely every little helps and we're very fortunate to have the Friends of Greenbank Park there um, so that they can talk about these issues because otherwise 
most people probably wouldn't know about it uh, never mind want to oppose it um, but yeah fortunately there were a lot of there are a lot of signatures on the petition and uh, there was a lot of local people that were against it yeah i think it's it's worth reiterating as well that the the, the planning permission was in fact uh, cancelled they revoked the um, the application uh, just due to the kickback from the community as well as potentially any sort of work that we'd done as well as other activist groups in the local area uh, and potentially the council as well so ultimately it has been a victory for democracy at least in this uh, case which is is really positive to see and we, we do talk about in our write-up which you can find on our website um, that you know as much as this might seem like a very small issue within a local park within a local community you know I'm uh, for example say let's say you're in Kent or you're in Yorkshire you know why does a cafe in a park in Liverpool matter to you well ultimately it's it's about showing the importance and the possibility of local democracy and and if, if we don't have the opportunity to talk and uh, decide what happens in our own local community in our own local park in our own local town then how are we going to decide what we want to do in terms of larger scale issues and how can we eventually work towards uh, greater local and regional autonomy we can't we have to start first at these grassroots levels we have to not only build up a name for ourselves, but additionally build up a name for direct democracy, the power of it, and let people rediscover what it feels like to have some agency in terms of democracy, in terms of their own community. You know, a lot you a lot of the time you'll see that it's mostly older people who will have an interest in these sorts of issues in terms of local petitions and arrangements. But I saw in terms of the Screenbank Park issue, there was an increasing number of young people who frequented the park who were becoming more and more interested with these sorts of topics. And I think that's because there is a general lack currently and a desire for uh, a return to people having agency within their own communities, which they haven't had for the past few decades to any great extent. So I think building up those those sort of grassroots um yeah, building up those grassroots is, is really important to, uh, you know, stoke the fires of democracy and hopefully build towards uh, a stronger sense and a stronger, tangible, uh, direct democracy in our communities and regions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, go on. I was just going to say the, the building blocks are clearly there. Um, the community had an understanding of... Uh, in regards to the cafe in Greenbank, they had an understanding of what was common land and what was for them. And I just found that intriguing that there is a natural cutoff where people do actually turn around and understand their community's needs and say enough is enough. Um, and as I say, I don't want to villainize uh, the business because it, it's not a bad business. It's just that I find it intriguing that people do actually have this point where they do cut off with eternal growth on matters like this. And they do actually say, no, this is ours. This is the community's and we will have our say on it. And the petition was over 2,000 people, which I was shocked 2,000 people became aware of the issue and were engaged enough to act on the issue. And, you know, not to sound uh, like I'm speaking down at all, but I was very proud that people actually still come out about such things because actually the planning permission was not as invasive as a lot of people think it was a smaller area than what to take than a lot of people think. We listed it on our website, the exact area that it is. But it was the principle alone that was enough for people. And interviewing people locally, it had already cut into a lot of what they perceived to be their space. Um, I was talking to someone whose kids used to play in there and used it as quite a safe area because dogs can't go in it. And um, you find that it's quite 
quiet. It's walled off garden, quite private. And the calf already has a, a conservatory overlooking that. And that upset a lot of the children when it first happened. They felt like they were being watched while they were playing and weren't keen on it. And, you know, you don't, you often don't consider these things, especially the wide range of people that are in a community, from the elderly who found it as a quiet area to the children who found it as a safe area. It is intriguing how much conviction there is locally to defending these areas, because there's not much of it, because, you know, most land is taken or fenced off in this country. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people nowadays don't feel like they have control anymore, even over the smallest things. Um, you know, a lot of them uh, don't enjoy their jobs, but they have to work there because because bills and things. And um, yes, yeah, to to be able to affect change, um, even even on this tiny level, you know, in comparison to the, the entire country, um, it's absolutely essential. And and we know as well that when these sort of things happen, uh, they invigorate people um, because it's what Sergei Popovic referred to as a small win. It gives you that stepping stone to make you feel like you can make further change. And I'm sure that every single person who signed that petition now feels like they were a part of something where they did change their area. They did, you know, have a real tangible effect. Um so it is absolutely brilliant and it is a stepping stone for anyone in that area who recognised the change that they were able to affect, um, that they can do the same uh, elsewhere, you know, possibly even on, on larger scales. It's interesting as well because the radical organiser Saul Alinsky, uh, obviously famous for a lot of activism across America um, and indeed across the world, but it's intriguing because he does talk about how you start with that small thing and you don't stop there. He says you do need to take those next steps and the next step and the next step. And people are. And I'm glad to see that the people of Greenbank, uh, I saw a new petition pop up literally today, which was to, I'm not sure in what way, but legally formalize that none of that green area can ever be built on in future generations either. Um, so I'm glad to see that they are pushing for the next step on that. That's brilliant. I think as well, it's it's definitely worth remembering the differences between the situation in Snodland and in Greenbank Park, because obviously you have two fairly similar situations here in terms of planning permission, um, although obviously the context is slightly different. But obviously the main difference between the two situations is not only that one succeeded and one failed, but that one was in the hands of a large corporation based in America, and that one was based with a local small business. So albeit it was the small business in Greenbank Park that applied for the planning permission, but after hearing the will of the community, they retracted that planning permission. Whereas KFC doesn't have to worry about that community. They're not accountable to that community because it doesn't matter what the people of Snodland say because ultimately they know that that KFC restaurant's going to have enough people in there and they have enough broader money coming in that even if that KFC is not as much of a success as it could be because there's a large percentage of the population that are unhappy with it being there in the first place, that that doesn't matter to them because they have the money to back it up anyway. And it's that level of economic unaccountability that's a problem and why we should prioritize wherever possible small businesses because it is small businesses who do respect the communities, who are a part of the communities and will listen to the communities, whereas a company like KFC, McDonald's or whoever else has absolutely no need to do so. So it's it's certainly intriguing to see the contrast between how small businesses and how larger American corporations interact with local democracy and local communities. And I think it's it's not only interesting, but I think it's incredibly telling about 
where their loyalties lie and where the considerations actually are. Because I can assure you, it's, I think it's far more likely to be with the profits than the people in the local area. Absolutely. It's one of the biggest lies you always see when something like KFC comes in. I've seen people on the internet talk about, but it's offering jobs, um, well, very few jobs, and largely zero-hour contracts, and not proper community-driven jobs that are giving something back. It's a sort of false economy when people talk about the jobs it does offer, and they say, well, what's the alternative? Right here, we've got KFC offering you know, eight small jobs or 30 in total for the entire building there, isn't that a lot of jobs locally? And it's like, well, it's not actually because it takes out of the market of your local sandwich shop. It takes out of the market of all of your local stores that someone, a father or a mother or whatever, might stop off on the way home and pick something up either from the butchers for dinner or from the greengrocer or from the fishmonger, whatever it is. But that's not there because when they do see the KFC and it's convenient there because they've got the money to buy the convenient building, there it is. You know, people drop in immediately and pick that thing up because it's quick, it's fast, they get it from this takeaway and take it home. But actually you're pushing out those local alternatives that would be there. That is already there intrinsically linked in community in my opinion because you only have to look at the fact that two-thirds of the population in Britain are employed by small and medium businesses. That does mean you know a lot of people sort of need to wake up from this capitalist lie that um, this idea that everyone would be employed by Amazon or KFC. Actually, the minority of people are employed by these large companies. Most people are not working for these large companies. The alternatives would be there right around the corner. The second you bring in this KFC, you're driving up the rent of all the other buildings. And the second you bring in another brand and another brand and another brand and all these clothing shops pop up and that are big brands and all of these fast food joints and whatever else pops up, all of that is driving the rent up because any landlord is going to know there's big money to be made the second you start charging a McDonald's to move in because McDonald's is going to be paying a far higher amount than a local business is going to be paying in rent. And they know that they're willing to do it because they've got that money from their global market. Um, but those alternatives would be there if you didn't have the KFC there. You would have more businesses locally. You would have the lower rent for people locally. And you would get a far larger variety of businesses, whereas those single corporations actually take up a bigger market than they deserve. Absolutely. And what this all comes down to ultimately is um, these corporations are already bigger than the community. Um, you know, we're talking about these small businesses who are um, adherent to the to the wishes of the people around them. Um, but as, as you both said, these, these businesses don't need to be. Um, and that is a problem that we are already at the point where these massive corporations don't need to care about the people around them and it's quite a common argument you know people use the free market argument that oh um, you know people just won't shop at the kfc if, if they don't want it there but that's just not true the convenience just overrides everything else and a lot of people simply don't have that conviction and those that do are in the minority uh, and are, are relevant to kfc the other thing is it won't necessarily be locals because it will be anyone who is passing through because i certainly wouldn't be at a kfc in um Suffolk, uh, I wouldn't be going into a KFC locally, but people who pass through the town would instantly go to that. I would actually be going to the places I know, the businesses I know, and the people I've known since I was in nappies. Um, but of course, any passer through or passerby is instantly going to go for those recognizable brands. I mean, McDonald's, I think, even advertise it that way, look for the golden arches, or at least used to. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. You know, you see uh, John and Son's sandwich shop, and you think, oh, that might be that might be dodgy. Uh, but you know what you're getting with KFC, for better or worse. 
uh, you know what it's going to be. It's the same every time, and you can just drive through and pick it up in two minutes. And it's not a matter of free choice either, because you have to remember that it ultimately is is a competition between a small local business and a multi-million, if not billion-dollar corporation with absolutely ridiculous marketing bills. Their marketing budget will be more than probably your community's yearly income in some cases. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that you know any small business can compete with that um because they 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 physically can't because money talks and when you have that much brand recognition you have you know scientifically engineered uh food and drink to try and bring people back as much as possible everything down to the size of mcdonald's straws is engineered to create uh uh experience which is more addictive it's absolutely no wonder that there are businesses which are struggling to compete so it's it's not just down to, you know, well, if you don't like McDonald's, just choose not to go there because local or non-local, you know, they market to kids who don't know any better. They market to everybody who does know better, but is too roped into that convenience or additionally too subconsciously affected by that marketing to think otherwise. And a lot of people would much rather choose that convenience than the actual community benefit just because of the power of that marketing. So I think, you know, it's it's not as, you know, genuine as people would let on. You know, these businesses are, to a certain extent, quite malicious in the way that they operate, at least malicious in the sense that they will often engineer themselves to be as addictive as possible, to manipulate and to encourage as much purchasing and spending as possible. Yeah, and even my uh, co-op I worked in as a kid, that pushed out the local greengrocer without a shadow of a doubt. He vanished very quickly after we got an upscale to be a slightly bigger co-op, and he was gone. He couldn't compete at all. Um, but something I did want to touch on there that you did hit on briefly as well was you know, predatory marketing of these things. Absolutely. Number one, as you said, things are engineered in a lab, literally, to, to get people to come back. But the other one is you talked about young people. Um yeah, this is one of the things that really bothers me with Snodland is this is being built next to a high school, essentially. Well, what do you think high schoolers, sick formers are going to do at lunch? Of course, they're going to go in there. And a lot of parents nowadays, more than ever before, are just giving kids money as well. So, of course, they're going to spend the money there. And we already have a massive obesity problem in the UK. And I think we're actually now the largest country in Europe um, for weight. And uh, lastly, what is it? Like one in three kids are you know, technically obese now. Um, and it's killing more people than smoking in the UK. So it's a massive cost on our NHS. And then we're, what, seeing the praises of KFC moving in? I think, honestly, we understand that it's dangerous for us to advertise cigarettes using, you know, very colourful or enticing imagery. You know, you used to have Flintstones advertising different brands of cigarettes. I think the fact that we still allow McDonald's to advertise their Happy Meals on TV is disgusting. And I think it's equally, if not more so, predatory because at least cigarettes, even at that point, were only permitted to adults. Whereas now we're permitting things that are just as harmful to children and enticing them in with toys, bright colours, recognisable characters from media. I think it's so predatory. And I, I don't think it's touched on enough because I think there's, first off, an attachment to these companies, the convenience of them, and, and sometimes necessarily the actual products as well. I think there's a fear of addressing the obesity crisis 
And lastly, I think people often feel powerless to do anything about it anyway, even if they did have an issue with it. So I think there needs to be a much bigger platform for democracy to be able to actually stand up against some of these massive corporations and put our foot down and look to what's best for younger people, as opposed to looking to what's best for these massive corporations and necessarily the economy. It's funny you mentioned the cigarette thing there as well, because, you know, you look at the McDonald's typeface and how recognisable it is and how everyone knows it at a glance. You know, it's not long ago at all that everyone knew that for Marlborough. Um, and you look at the colonel for KFC, you know, how recognisable is he? He's almost like the camel from Camel Cigarettes or something, you know, uh, or the Marlborough man. I think that I think that in 100 years time, we will either be one way or the other. We will be talking a lot about healthy eating and fast food will almost be like smoking is now. Alternatively, we'll go the other way and we'll succumb to, as I've used as an example several times before, we will become Wally, the Disney film, and uh, fast food will be everywhere and we'll all be fat on uh, hovering mobility scooters. Um, it's going to be one way or the other, and um, I definitely would be on the side of, uh, you know, prefer to be on the side of going healthy uh, and seeing fast food marketed the same way that, that smoking is. I do like that in local matters very often our scale of how bad things can get is Wally. <laughs> that, that is the nightmare. Yeah. That, that is the nightmare. Yeah, that is uh, peak consumerism. Destroy the earth, um, eat processed food, be fed by robots. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my hell. Uh, and that's a lot of people's dream. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there's... Uh... You know, a lot of opportunities for us to swing it one way or another. And I think ultimately it, it does come down to the will of the people because I think there is, you know, if you sat people down and I think you had a, a frank conversation with most people, they would admit, yeah, McDonald's probably isn't the best for us. Hmm. Um, and I think a lot of defense comes down to, well, okay, maybe I won't go to McDonald's as much, but if other people choose to, you know, it's, it's this rampant individualism that's the problem. And I think when we start thinking more as a community and in terms of that collective well-being, uh, through direct democracy, local democracy, uh, there, there can be a, a big platform for change there because I think people do recognize the problem, even if subconsciously. It's just offering them the platform to do something about it. So I think, you know, it's it's more than likely that in the next couple of years, if not a decade or two, there will be some sort of pushback and there will be greater restrictions in place, or at least I can hope so. And yeah, finally, I just want to reiterate the point that this is exactly why uh, it matters. These things like Green Bank Park, which are minuscule and it's, you know, 75 metres squared of a small cafe moving in on a small park in, you know, in Liverpool, which is across the country for a lot of people. Um, but it does matter because this could happen to you and if we continue to allow these things to happen it solidifies the precedent that the community interest is irrelevant when it comes to profits but yeah moving on um now i think we've covered everything there and you know, we'll round off as we did last episode by talking about uh, the second chapter of our book uh, which is the democracy chapter um a lot of this of course ties in with everything we've just discussed um, Greenbank Park being a brilliant example of local democracy, uh, but this time you know, from outside the system. And again, if, in case you haven't said it already, I'm very grateful for that the watering can withdrew their application and adhered to the wishes of the people. Uh, whereas, as we've said, big companies like KFC wouldn't do because they don't need to. Um, and democracy is essential on you know on these tiny levels on these regional levels and these national levels uh, and throughout this chapter um we cover we cover all these all these variations 
of course, to start with, as we've not mentioned in this episode, um, but we have mentioned definitely previously, is that it's ridiculous to believe that 650 people can represent 67 million. Uh, I think more than 67 million now, um, as the census will tell us, which, which I'm quite interested to see the results of. Um, but of course, representative democracy isn't... Um, isn't representative at all and you cannot expect your MP to to adhere to your wishes or even the wishes of the majority a lot of the time uh, you know we've we've used the example of um, Brexit where where a lot of MPs voted different to how their constituency voted um, but on all sorts of issues the MP firstly may not care about these tiny issues and secondly even if they do they might not have the power to do anything because they are just one person yeah, I think it's uh, really telling, uh, based on both of these stories, just how much um, power has been taken away from a lot of these representative politicians, even that, you know, you can see that despite their centralization, they still do absolutely, and excuse my language, fuck all. Um, you know, the issue of Greenbank Park was brought, I'm pretty sure, to the MP as well. I'm quite sure that Snodland had been brought to and opposed by the MP, but neither of them could do anything really to stop it. It only happened in, in Greenbank because the actual company itself, uh, the business, pulled back their application. But if you look in Snodland, the, the actual political figure supposed to represent that community was absolutely powerless to prevent the market's engagements within it. Um, you know, And I think it's it's that sort of conflict, not only between representative democracy and direct democracy, but also the difference between democracy and the market that's worth discussing. Um, but for sure, when things are put to the community, and if things were put to the community more often, you would see that things would be a lot better looked after. You know, there, there was a public opposition to this KFC being built. There was a public stand-up against this park being built over. And if people were actually allowed to have that voice, and that voice actually had any weight behind it, things would get done a lot better than they are getting done now because ultimately people don't have any agency and people don't have any impact on, on the area around them, even if they are the MP. So I think, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, direct versus uh, representative democracy, but it's also empowering democracy in general mm. as well, which is really important. Yeah. And it's the mm. original roots in England. I mean, we come from democracy. That's how we first spawned uh, when we had our, you know, early English culture or sort of Anglo-Saxon, we used to have the ping, is it, or thing? I, thing. I normally the hear thing. it as thing, but um, I know that Ethan has called it ping, which I assume is yeah. maybe the Saxon pronunciation. Um, no, it's, uh, it's the way it's written. It looks like a P, uh, but it's a strange P, but it's pronounced T-H. I see. It's like an Anglo-Saxon um, letter. But it does intrigue me because that's where we first come from, and we first came from you know that which evolved into the folk moot and it was all about what does the folk think on this matter and it's just intriguing to think that we would lose that over time despite the mm. fact that we clearly viewed it as a strong form of governance when we were on a smaller scale and on a smaller scale things are more personable it's where things are going to affect you absolutely yeah. the most well of course we can blame the normans for that it's uh, very troublesome when when you're a foreign king trying to centralize your power in a land and all these different towns are communicating with each other and deciding what they want which is obviously not in your interests um because they're just peasants you know trying to rule them so um of course the the normans didn't want us to continue having that um that communal democracy 
Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's really interesting to see just how there is this conflict between ourselves and, and we seeing ourselves as this sort of more advanced form of civilization who, you know, is democratic and we have due processes and, and all these different systems in place to try and create some more tangible sense of democracy and a fair democracy. Uh, and I think in many cases we look down on both what we'd call non-developed communities in, in the developing world, so-called developing world or the global south, or even our own ancestors uh, in the Anglo-Saxon era or afterwards or before as somehow undeveloped, undemocratic, you know, somehow in, inferior to ourselves. When in reality, I think a lot of those historic practices of democracy, especially if you look back at ancient Greece and a lot of ways in which they handled their democracy, you know, we've strayed so far from that. And, and to call the UK democratic in its entirety is, is quite difficult really now. And I think if you had some of those people from the, the, the past and brought them to the present and they assessed society, I think they would agree that it's far less democratic now than it had been historically. Just because we're now not governed by a king who we don't elect doesn't mean that we have any more agency over our lives in, in the vast majority of ways. You know, it's it's still very much out of our hands and, and where things will matter the most in terms of our own lives and our own experiences in the world at the local level we have less impact than we ever have throughout history. And I'm quite comfortable in saying that. Um, and I think it's, it's you know, often seen as an over-dramatization to say that the UK isn't fully democratic or that we don't live in a democracy anymore. And it's, it's a phrase often used by people to, you know, criticize cultural elements or, or, or this sort of vague sweeping statement. But I do quite strongly believe that our so-called democracy isn't quite as democratic as people would uh, always make it out to be and i think it needs needs to be addressed you only have to look at the party machines funding as well at the end of the day they have economic interests and it takes a lot of money to win elections um it costs millions to win elections i don't have the exact figures on me but you know at the end of the day labor have to adhere by what lord sainsbury wants because he's one of their biggest donors um so wealth definitely is a part of power at the moment and that's a issue that seriously needs untying um but you only have to look at examples as well of even first past the post in general and representative democracy because, I mean, UKIP got, what, like 12 or 13% of the national vote in, what was it, 2015? And that got mm. them one seat out of 650. Yeah. The SNP got something around 4% of the vote but got 56 seats. And you only have to look at those figures to go, well, it doesn't add up, does it? Any If you put that yeah. to any child, any child will go, well, that's not right. Yeah, something's not something's not working there. Um, but of course, the people who are supposed to change or replace that system are the people who benefit from the system. Uh, but yeah, it's very obvious that um, that something's not working correctly. But it's just about getting people to be aware of that, and then when they are aware, getting them to care about it. Um, and the two the two vital elements, because once people are aware and they care then um, then if they care enough they will demand change and we can make change as people uh, i mean france does it at all you know uh, i think it was is it every 70 years uh, roughly they have a revolution they definitely have a re revolution clock don't they and it's about the same time between revolutions in france it's in the culture yeah and i mean certainly yeah. the british people aren't good at revolution because we've never had it we've revolted mm. multiple times but we've never had a revolution so it's certainly not in our blood we have a very very conservative strain in us 
that is very beholden to the landowners, very beholden to the aristocracy, and people don't want to upset that system because there is a strong amount of conservation in us. And a lot of that comes back to the fact that I think a lot of people, you still see this glint in their eyes if they think the empire is still going. Um, uh, it's sort of comical that people seem to think it hasn't ended per se. I know that we certainly have some form of banking empire, that's for sure, um, and the way in which we offshore money um, and take that from people. Um, but certainly ever since the you know suez crisis and on from there the fall of the empire i think a lot of people seem to think that's still coming back in some way and so they're very beholden to this vague patriotic idea that to be patriotic is to be in love with the landlords um mm. uh, i find that a very odd part of the british people but it's almost this idea that there's a hierarchy that must be followed and in some way this wealth hierarchy is apparently deserved under the empire it's a different debate maybe it was deserved um ignoring people who benefited from the slave trade um and darker practices of the empire when you look at the humanitarian elements of the empire some people made their money on good and i think some people therefore felt that it was deserved that these lords had their positions um but since then what's really being clung on to there i find it a curious question of what are we clinging on to there? Because it's not like the empire is coming back anytime soon. People sort of seem to have this idea that it is soon and therefore the hierarchy will work again. But most people now have just inherited it from, you know, them, those before them and those before them and those before them. Um, there's a anecdotal sort of story of a man who was walking on common land and the landlord comes over and he says to get off the land. And he says, well, why? And he says, it's mine. And he says, well, why is it yours? And he says, because it was my father's. And he says, well, why was it your father's? And he goes, well, because it was his father's. And he goes, well, how did he get it? And he goes, well, he fought for it. And he says it with real conviction and pride. And he just looks up at him and he says, all right, I'll fight you for it now then. <laughs> and it just kind of gets me because, yeah, when you look at democracy, it's strange how much power is still held in wealth. Um, because 2019 as well. You look at uh, the figures for how much parties spent on their campaigns, and I think the Tories, it was something around 15 million. Uh, you look 16, at 16, I think. Yeah. 16. And then you look at like SMP, and it's a million. UKIP was about eight, eight grand. Um, yeah. And when you look at that, it, it directly correlates to how many votes they're getting, and it directly mm. correlates to the power transfer that takes place. I'm quite confident in change, though, over the next couple of decades, because I think not only is there a, a broader change in ideas taking place just due to a lot of pushback against the way in which the world and, and specifically Britain is headed, but I also am actually fairly confident in younger people. And I think there's a lot of um, naysaying about younger people because they are often swept up in trends. They are often quite um, impressionable in terms of, of the broader elements of society. And, you know, they will be the first people at McDonald's and they will be the first people to, to jump into consumerism. However, I think they're also some of the first people to stand up against it. And they are some of the first people to criticise some of those traditions which we're talking about. You know, I'm not going to get into the, the recent debates in terms of the monarchy and, and all the drama around it, but the people who are questioning it and are saying, you know, are the better ways in which we can do things are younger people. And I don't necessarily think the broader young consensus now is correct in, in, a, in the vast majority of ways, but I do think that's where the discussion is largely happening. I think the change will come with the younger generations, as opposed to the older ones who are far too entrenched in the 1970s and 1960s, you know, in this sort of post-war era. And I think, 
you know, it's going to take younger people to try and shape the next few decades. And I, I'm fairly confident that, you know, not only our own efforts as localists, but also the broader efforts of, of other elements of society, be it environmentalist groups or otherwise, will make changes for the better. Uh, and I think ultimately we will see uh, broad change for the good. Uh, but I think it is a matter of time and it is a matter of, of essentially waiting for some of the old guard to to step aside and, and, and let some of, of those new voices come in and not necessarily, you know, against tradition, not necessarily in spite of tradition, because I think much of, of our country's tradition, our culture is incredibly important. Um, you know, in that aspect, I certainly am more of an old guard. But I think there's a way of preserving our country, a way of preserving our our way of life, our ideals, our culture, our customs, our you know the idea of the English as a whole. But I, I think that in doing so, we have to change because I don't think we can sit by and allow the current system to run its course and expect those traditions to be able to continue. I think those traditions are under threat and it will take active opposition to preserve them as opposed to sitting idly by and hoping that banging our head against the wall and doing the same thing over and over again every election cycle, be it you know, voting for the Conservatives, maybe trying to vote in Labour and going in this, this awful game of democratic you know, table tennis is going to get anywhere. Because ultimately, I, I think it won't. And I think that um, it, it's going to require a lot broader reform. But it's curious, isn't it? Because... What you've just said about the younger generation and particularly Zoomers and the lower end of millennials is sort of comical where it's the neoliberal system that raised them with the values that democracy is a British value. So, of course, they've grown up and noticed, well, where's the democracy? Because the teachers that Tony Blair brought in under New Labour across the country, large swathes of teachers, they're the very teachers who have been telling Zoomers as they've been growing up, oh, by the way, there's a lot of injustices in society and have been pointing out injustices. And we've brought in lessons like PSHE and all sorts to really understand those. And we've brought in uh, more RE education, religious education, and mm -hmm. been looking at the differences in cultures and the differences in peoples. We've been you know, taught about multiculturalism throughout our education system. And it's ironic because, you know, the birds are coming home to nest now because it's the very young people that you taught to respect differences that are coming out and respecting differences. And even the polarization of young people between far left and far right, something in common with both of those groups is they are both starting to accept the differences between people. And they're both starting to accept that there is social injustice, be it amongst various different groups or be it amongst the people as a whole, um, regardless of difference. And I do find it just sort of comical that it is that very system that you know bred us to work for it that has actually ended up you know shooting itself in the foot by raising us that way with very liberal values means we've sort of you know everyone's gone to something outside of liberalism because they've looked at liberalism and said you're a hypocrite because even the young consumer liberal who very quickly can see massive goings on in their society absolutely huge watershed moments but then they're very quick to just go onto tiktok because what what matters when something is being handed down from the ether constantly for you to look at for three seconds to gain your attention again you can look at a huge crisis going on with the monarchy and then go oh, that's a really funny cat um and then hmm. you've moved straight on to the next matter in life and kind of ignored it and that political apathy that they've created through consumption has actually become a large problem because it's led to the young people going i don't care about politics all the parties are mental because they're just looking at it funnily enough, often with flawed logic, but funnily enough, they're looking at it at such a base level that they just glance at politics, go, that's messed up, and immediately don't want anything to do with those leading parties. 
um, on a, on a on a whole, most are getting that way. So I'm quite intrigued to see where young people push because of their political apathy. There's clearly not a party that they truly feel represents them right now. And Labour, I mean, gets embarrassing with its desperate, desperate pleas to try to be in touch with the young. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of, and I think that is because a lot of young people, well, a lot of people in general, actually, just look at politics and especially past politics from inside the lens that is that is crafted. Uh, you know, as you say, there is a lot of um, there's a lot of distractions and things like that. But they, but everything keeps you within a political sphere, uh, which you really need to take a step back from and think, okay, uh, maybe it's not just the conservatives that are flawed, or maybe it's not just the major parties that are flawed. But, you know the whole system we really need you know not to not to give medicine um to to the ill system but we need to do an operation on the ill system we really do um and i think yeah as you say the labor are seen as the labor are seen as the students party but that's only because of things like um, you know they talk about the uh, giving students free uh, education and things like that and additionally, you know, the focus on social issues and uh, all these moral arguments and things, which are very easy uh, to pass off to younger people, especially um, when something is uh, morally correct at face value, then that is um, that is a very easy policy to push with emotionally driven people, which tends to be a lot of young people. Which is interesting when liberal systems on average don't have much interest in what's moral or not moral. Um, liberal systems are the ones who will, you know, side with Russia to beat Hitler. And then once Hitler is defeated, we start declaring that the Russians are the worst people and communism is the worst thing you could possibly imagine. Um, because it's entirely about liberalism's interest at any one given time because of its marriage to capitalism. So it's always got to be about that profit, that drive and that push for liberalism across the world. And representative democracy going full circle here not being a true democracy it's you know largely upheld by those with wealth are uh, the ones who then have power um and then around the world we you know end up bombing people in the name of democracy and still false democracies around the world as if it's a quasi-religious word when we barely have one of our own mm. i think there's uh definitely growing radical tendencies in terms of uh younger people i think there is a very very uh, there's been multiple studies done showing that there is a very massive increase in radicalization among young people. And by that, I don't mean to any sort of, you know, religious radicalization. I mean, political radicalization. I mean, people surging towards both the left and the right um, on that sort of traditional spectrum and then also outside of that left right dichotomy as well. And I think for us, as what I would describe, you know, fairly radical political uh, thinkers, it would um is, is, is a massive opportunity for us to try and get more young people on board and try and encourage more young people to get involved with politics and you know because they're not feeling enfranchised by the system because they can't feel represented by the system uh to do something about it rather than being apolitical and i think it's that political apathy which will slowly breed into political resentment and in turn eventually as these younger people mature and they do have a stake in politics because they are starting to be taxed they are starting to be part of the system more that they're going to want to change that system that they're a part of um and i think you know if i was you know a very strong liberal and i was in parliament right now i would be quite afraid about the future of, of my status quo, because I think the current status quo, the current system of capitalism, at the very least, uh, is massively under threat 
by uh, the the voices of young people. So I think you know, as much as it's potentially worrying to see in which way it will turn, you know, I wouldn't particularly want to see society swing to the far left or the far right um, in any of its past iterations. Uh, but I think uh, you know, hopefully, uh, the young people will be able to guide themselves towards what I would hope would be something more akin to localism over the next few decades. And I think, especially based on on some of the success we've had on social media and otherwise, that's not an unrealistic thought to have. No, it's certainly got a surge. We've talked before about you know hipster movements and how they you know do up local areas and how they create small businesses, um, food businesses, clothing businesses, vintage businesses, used goods, secondhand, whatever, um, or handmade things that they've newly created in a sort of new craft revolution. So certainly, what you're saying there, I think there's a large element of truth. I think a lot of the young are starting to get very into localism, because a lot of people uh, make the mistake, especially quite, you know, a fair amount of our followers, that localism is sort of intrinsically linked to rural areas or the countryside. And yes, it's often used as a nice ideal for localism, and you can put up a lovely image of a Yorkshire hamlet, and it looks beautiful, and everyone can understand what you mean. But um, certainly, localism is still very relevant to the cities and you know various municipalities, and that's what you're seeing across cities now. Even you know very much politan youth are setting up their own small collectives um, and their own sort of common ownership type business ventures. Yeah, good. I mean, I'd, ideally, um, what we'd want to see, whether it be a city or a town or a little hamlet. Um, you know, we want to see a, a democratic surgery. You know what I mean? Talking in practical terms, talking in tangible terms, we would want to see somewhere that people can walk in, a, a building that people can walk into and they say, this is my issue. You know, and um, and that is what we want to see. And I think that in time, uh, with enough education on that topic, young people will be the key. Well, I say young people. Uh, I don't think they'll be so young by the time these things come in. I mean, I'm uh, 22 now. Um, so I think I'm still a young person uh, for a little bit longer, but um, these are definitely things that I could see being brought in the next 10, 20 years. And especially um, with these surgeries, you could have people listen to uh, and even met, you know, even local referenda, uh, as we talk about in the book, as we talk about in, in loads of different places. Um, imagine if the, imagine if Snodland could have a referendum on KFC which had the democratic power um, to remove it from the area, if that's what the people wanted. Uh, in the indirect sense, that's what happened in Greenbank Park. You know, the people came together and said, we do not want this. And the, um, the private business adhered to their mandate uh, or lack of mandate for their expansion. Uh, and these things are essential for a, a real democracy and everything we've talked about this is what it comes down to. Uh, and this is, is what we, so this is what we project as as the cure, um, you know, as the correct operation uh, for a lack of democracy in our system, among other things, of course. Yeah, and sort of closing on that thought, one of the things that's quite exciting is Brexit, even though a lot of young people are very unhappy about it, um, according to, you know, statistical data, talking about their voting direction on it, the fact is, it was the first step towards more sovereignty, which means it's the first step towards more devolution and smaller and smaller scale uh, where their voices can be heard. And I think young people are starting to pick up on the fact that their voices are heard in smaller aggregates and their voices are heard on more of a local level. And I think that referendum in general as a idea 
Brexit has given them a taste of it, actually. And as much as young people might like to complain about the Brexit vote, it's intriguing to see that all across Twitter at the moment, in regards to the Meghan Markle situation, all I have seen is constant reference to we should have a referendum. We should have a ref- referendum on the royal family or a referendum on her or a referendum on her involvement in the crown, which ultimately, let's be honest, it's their own institution. It's up to them. But the the point is, at the, as it stands, um, but the point is... Uh, that young people did get a taste for local referendum. And I'm excited to see that there is a lot of energy for young people realizing that's where democracy really took place. And that has been a pivotal point in a lot of their lives. A lot of voters were just 18 at the time and they got a real taste as their opening vote for the first time in their life was a real, you know, uh, everything was on the table for that vote. It was a real tangible vote where their vote really meant one vote. Yeah, and that power that they felt, you know, for for anyone who voted leave and and saw the result of that, um, in effect, that power that that they felt inside them was what Nigel Farage has ridden on for the last four or five years. Uh, you know, people saw him as the guy that made things happen. So when he opened the Reform Party and started talking about um, and started talking about making democratic changes, democratic reform, people saw him as the guy who could do that because of Brexit. And we can see that repeat itself if we have more of these referendums or more of this community action like Green Bank Park, as I said towards the start of this episode, the people there who sign that petition will feel empowered and they will feel a sense of um, usefulness. You know, their voice does matter uh, in their community and they can make change by using it. All right. Well, I don't think I've got anything else to say. I think we've pretty much talked about uh, all elements of democracy and, and a lot about what's happened over the past month as well, and, and as well as the future of democracy as, as we can see it coming. So uh, unless anyone else got anything else to add, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up on. Yeah, I think so too. No, I'm happy. I do think that uh, at the end of this, I'd like to clip in the Monty Python sketch uh, with the peasants in the field when the king comes over and tells them he's in charge of them and they have no knowledge of it. Yeah. I think it would be a good closing clip. Yeah. We'll see about putting that at the end. Uh, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and um, we'll be doing a, another episode next month. Bye bye. 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 We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two thirds majority in the case be of more. Be major- quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, did you?
Thank you for listening to the Local Matters podcast. Please be sure to rate and review our podcast as this helps us to appear in online searches. You can find our in-depth articles and news at www.thelocalists.org. Follow us on Instagram at localmattersenG for our most active community news and updates. Feel free to message us on Twitter at localmattersenG to get involved and inquire about any way to help out, no matter how small. If you would like to get more involved, we have a local supporter chat. To join, simply message us on Twitter. The supporters chat allows members to be in direct contact with the movement's key members and activities. If you would like to support our podcast team, writers, graphic designers or local activists, do consider finding us on Patreon by searching for Local Matters and clicking on that little red robin. Supporters can pledge as little as £2.40 a month, just the cost of a cup of coffee. Gain insider information on upcoming activities, graphics and events. Any support means the world to us. Local Matters is run purely on the passion of our volunteers and community to create a better England. You've been listening to the Local Matters podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our show and will join us on our very English journey.